Uh, Edward Teller is among the two or three best-known scientists in the world. He is closely identified with the theoretical thinking that went into the production of the nuclear bomb. And as a public figure, he is identified with the position that the use of the bomb or the threat of its use is preferable to capitulation to totalitarianism. Now, Dr. Teller was naturalized in 1941 having been born in Budapest in 1908. He taught physics at George Washington University and then was scooped up by the engineers of the Manhattan Project, which developed the first atom bomb. He returned to academic life as a university professor at the University of California and continues to serve as director of the university's Lawrence Radiation Laboratory. He has written six books and received a great many awards. I should like to begin by asking Dr. Teller uh, whether he believes that the magnitude of nuclear, nuclear explosions affects the conventional hierarchy of values by which we have been guided during most of history. It depends on which values. Of course, the nuclear explosives are really powerful weapons. Nuclear explosives do not constitute the absolute weapon. To say that would be a mistake. It is not true that there is no defense against them. And incidentally, I want to say right away, I certainly, the way I am informed about what's going on behind the Iron Curtain, I don't want to capitulate under any circumstances. I also would not use any weapon first. I would want to be strong enough because I believe that strength in the hands of those who want peace is the best guarantee of peace. Well, now, there are those, <clears throat> Dr. Teller, who reason as follows. They say that if you take um, conventional ethical arguments, uh, which um, justified, for instance, the use of uh, cannon or artillery or whatever as appropriate instruments to use uh, in self-defense, that um, the, the use of a hydrogen bomb, even for so... Uh, honorable a purpose uh, uh, distorts the old hierarchy of values. The, uh, the, the, the Thomistic uh, uh, understanding was that uh, you had to use something that was appropriate to the goal that you in intended to realize. Now, is the killing of uh, 100 million people appropriate to any goal at all? Let me try to answer in terms which I understand. I do not want to go into religious arguments, yet I want to tell you that many years ago, when I was a young teenager, I once asked my grandfather, isn't it wrong that the Bible says a tooth for a tooth, 
an eye for an eye, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And what my grandfather said, I never forgot. It is not that you should take a tooth for a tooth or an eye for an eye. This is a prohibition. You must never take more than a tooth for a tooth, nor an eye for an eye. I think that the appropriateness of your response is a moral question. And there are some stable values in morality. And that is why I would object under all circumstances to a first strike. I would also say that if we are attacked, I would much rather have a defense, and we can have a defense. But I also think that we must be prepared to retaliate. I'd much rather, if I had to retaliate, destroy cities and factories which are empty of people. And indeed, the Russians have a civil defense which is based on evacuation of their cities. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to kill Russians. But I also don't want to give up. And I would like to have the technical means, the means in technology, that can keep us safe, that can serve for our defense or for some deterrence. And if it so happens that many millions have to be killed, after many millions of us have died, I would say that a continuation of freedom means to me more than practically any other consideration. Is that a, an evasion or an answer? No, I, th I think it's a, very <clears throat> it's a very complete answer. It leaves out uh, reference to a single uh, distinction, which I would like you, I'd like to hear you out on. Suppose, <clears throat> suppose <clears throat> one agreed <clears throat> that the maintenance of a defensive nuclear arsenal uh, was justified because of its probable deterrent effects. Suppose then, however, it failed, whether because the other side decided on some suicidal first strike or whatever, uh, would there be a moral justification the deterrent value of your arsenal having failed in using it punitively? I think that if we are attacked, we must strike back. <clears throat> However, with respect to the Russians, I am practically certain that there will never be a suicidal attack. The people in the Kremlin are not very kind. They have shown that they can be dreadfully cruel. But they are no gamblers. I think if they attack us, it will be because they have great superiority. And in the last years, I have seen the development 
of a frightening Russian superiority. Well, on the, on the purely hypothetical question, which we should presumably divorce from our knowledge of the Russian character, uh, would you, sitting at the right hand of the President of the United States, assuming that the United States was demolished by power X, which used its atomic uh, weaponry against us, would you authorize or direct the use of our nuclear uh, strength merely in order to prove what now becomes the second point, which is primarily punitive rather than deterring? I really cannot answer this question. The word punitive <clears throat> has a somewhat ambiguous meaning. Retaliatory, if you prefer. Retaliatory is better. Mm -hmm. You see, if the United States is de demolished, then I am mm. demolished, then the president is demolished, or retaliation is demolished, there is no question left. If there is something left, then there is also something to be saved. Well. Many of us may die, but the question is whether the United States, as an entity, as a power, as an idea, will survive. And in the heat of action, <clears throat> we are not likely to know if we are attacked. I am likely to advise, I am almost certain to advise, to retaliate in the hope that we shall survive. But if all that we have left is, say, a submarine fleet, uh, the country, as you and I know it, having been destroyed, would you say that for the sake of the survival of that fleet, retaliation is morally imperative? You are asking a question that, to my mind, is absurd, and I'm not going to answer it. I am arguing in every possible way for civil defense, for making sure that it is not merely the fleet that survives, but that at least 90% of the American people shall survive. I think that when the attack comes, we are not going to know how many have survived. We will have to act. And we must be prepared to act. And I am apt to make the assumption <clears throat> that there is something more than a little bit of hardware that is to be defended. Well, would you go so far as to say, as some people do, that to the extent that you fail, to make the retaliation automatic, you invite the first assault. Because if the enemy feels that there is going to be time for meditation between their strike and your response to it, they might be encouraged to believe <clears throat> that during that period, you will decide that retaliation is futile. I would go so far as to say <clears throat> that my statements, as I have just given them, are necessary. Are what? Necessary. Because if I don't make them, if the enemy does not know that we are indeed going to retaliate, it is less certain that he will be deterred. This is one point. But you know, 
let me right here give you a couple of favorite definitions of a pessimist and an optimist. A pessimist is a person who is always right, but doesn't get any enjoyment out of it. <laughs> An optimist is someone who imagines, imagines that the future is uncertain. I am an optimist. And I believe, as an optimist, that we are going to survive. That the United States, that freedom, is going to survive. And I am willing to base practically all my actions on this optimism and on the responsibility that flows from this optimism. Well, Dr. Teller, speaking, um, speaking of survival, uh, there has, um, in the last um, few months especially, been a great deal of publicity given to uh, the relative increase in Soviet power over against our own power. In fact, there are those who say that we have, we are at least on the brink of losing our strategic uh, deterrent. I'd like to ask you two questions. Number one, uh, are you permitted to speak on this subject? Uh, and if not, can we infer from your silence that the United States government has a technological ace up its sleeve? <clears throat> Let me start with the second question while I remember. <laughs> I am trying to work on that ace. What that ace is, is a strictly kept secret. And it shouldn't be, <clears throat> because in an open country, the most effective behavior is to work openly. And I will tell you this much. We are working on an ace. But I cannot yet tell you whether it will be an ace or a deuce. This is the nature of technological competition. With respect to the first, Russian superiority, I can tell you <clears throat> that when Mr. Laird, our Secretary of Defense, said that in 1975, the Russians may be able to execute a first strike, I was relieved. You were what? Relieved. I was happy. That it because I knew that such a danger existed. I knew that the Russians are developing a superiority which may lead to this dreadful situation where they can strike and we can't strike back because their first strike was too powerful. Or at least we can't strike back effectively. Not because of moral considerations, but because they have destroyed too much of our retaliatory capability. He said it. He was the first official who had the courage 
and the authorization to come out and say so. I was relieved that at least some people in the United States know in what dangerous a spot we are. We have been keeping Russian secrets even more carefully than we kept our own secrets. And we misled the American people into a false sense of security. Unfortunately, there are too many people who still don't believe what the Secretary of Defense has said. Well, sir, are you, are you entitled to divulge Soviet secrets? I am not. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the, uh, what is the thinking that goes behind keeping them uh, secret? What the thinking is, I don't know. Are they afraid of what panic? What the statements <clears throat> are that go with it, <clears throat> I can tell you. If we divulge what we know, then we give them an indication how we found out. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that this argument has just a little validity, but it has been immensely overplayed. I sometimes suspected that Mr. McNamara kept Soviet secrets because he was afraid to let people know how poorly he managed our own defenses. By now, a habit of secrecy has set in. Well, I like, I won't sing, my singing voice is not very good today, you see. But you know, the hymn of the, the battle of the, of the, of the Republic. The, the battle hymn of the Republic. The, yes, the battle hymn of the Republic. His soul is moldering in a bank, mm -hmm. but his, uh, his body is moldering in a bank, but his soul is marching on. Mm -hmm. uh, McNamara's tight reign is still not completely broken. We should open up more. We should open up to tell people how great the danger is. Mm -hmm. Because without showing some proof, no one will believe it. And we should work on that ace or that juice on which I'm working. Public. We should working mm. on it more openly because we cannot tell our scientists, like the Russians, you go and you must work. A scientist works when he chooses. And the first commandment of science is openness. As long as we have secrecy, our progress is slow, and we can't compete. Why is the Soviets' progress so rapid under the circumstances? They can compel their people to work. They can even make them enthusiastic. Because if you can tell people what to listen to and what not to listen to, it is only too easy to mislead them. The Soviet scientists are good. They are very good. And in Russia, the importance of applied science and defense science has been stressed over and over again. While in the United States, our universities have turned away from applied science. And recently, we see that our young people are indoctrinated 
against working on any defense, that under these conditions we fall behind is no miracle. Well, are you, are you saying that the government of the United States can't uh, use its resources to attract scientists to uh, the production of whatever it is that we need to produce in order to affect the national defense? To the production, mm -hmm. yes. Are you saying there's a national to the invention. To the invention? No. Mm -hmm. You see, we are not in an mm -hmm. arms race where we produce more and more of the same thing. Mm -hmm. We are in a technological race where we have to invent new things. And in an open society, you just can't compel people to use their inventive powers, their ingenuity, in a direction in which they don't want to use them. In the all-encompassing ideology of the Soviet Union, they exercise a much stronger control, not only over the bodies, <clears throat> but over the minds of their people. And that is ultimately the reason why I put the defense of secrecy, or the defense of openness. Of openness. <clears throat> no, the defense of freedom mm -hmm. first. I am sorry. The point is, we have seen what happens in a country mm -hmm. where there is no freedom, where people can be told. You have seen some signs of it. Perhaps all of you have seen some signs of it. I have spent some part of my life closer to Russia. I have talked with many people who have come out of Hungary. And I know how the thought control works. And it is a very powerful thing. So re really what you have stated is a paradox that on the one hand, if a society is free, uh, it is more inventive. but unless it is totally free and abandons any secrecy at all, it cannot successfully compete against a society that is completely totalitarianized and, and secret. I would not say it in general. Mm -hmm. I would say it in our special case, yeah. as we have developed. In the Second mm -hmm. World War, we worked secretly and we worked well, because we were united against the Nazis. Mm -hmm. Today, we are not similarly united in the defense of freedom. Well, uh, is, is there what amounts to a boycott by advanced scientific uh, minds in America against participation in defense enterprises? I wouldn't call it a boycott. I would only <clears throat> call it a noticeable lack of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. I must say that there are some in the student movement, I don't know by what initials they go, SDS or whatever, <laughs> who might want to make it a boycott, who might succeed, <clears throat> and if they succeed, we are lost. Well, now, uh, what, uh, what can be done to uh, stimulate uh, their desire to contribute their talent for the defense of America? I think many things can be and should be done. The policy of openness will help a very great deal. Mm 
Because first of all, it will create a proper atmosphere. Secondly, it will allow us to collaborate with our natural allies. And thirdly, it will permit us to say openly that indeed we are not ahead, indeed we lag behind. Although I want to qualify that. In nuclear explosives, where we build the highest Chinese wall of secrecy, my clear impression is that the Russians are ahead of us. In another field, very important in our civil economy and very important in defense, we are ahead. That is, in computers. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason is that work on computers is practically <clears throat> open. That attracts our ingenious young people. Also, I'm not to I don't want to abandon all secrecy. I do want to abandon secrecy in research. And generally, I would like to be as open as ever possible. And I think we can be quite open. Uh, Dr. Teller, you, you're no doubt uh, familiar with the letter addressed by the Soviet scientist Sukharov to the Presidium last spring in which he complained about the secrecy and uh, what it was doing to Soviet science. He said, for instance, uh, that the American technological lead was so great and becoming so much greater uh, that unless uh, the Soviet Union freed up its scientists, it would be impossible ever to catch up with us. And he, he referred especially to uh, the lead that we have in computer technology. Now, uh, my question is, uh, in the light of his own rather pessimistic assumption about uh, Soviet uh, technological, strategic technological uh, capabilities, would you say that the lead they now enjoy in nuclear weapons can, we, that we can assume that it will be a temporary lead? We cannot assume we can. that it <clears throat> will be a temporary lead. I was very happy to learn that Sakharov, who made great contributions to the Russian thermonuclear program, particularly, I believe, to the controlled thermonuclear pro program, I was very happy to see that he is pleading for openness. I have known from, for a long time, from contacts, direct and indirect, with Russian scientists, that they do not love secrecy anymore than we do. The Russian scientists also have very little influence. Yet, Zakharov's statement holds a great measure of hope. You see, in weapons, they are ahead, and unless we open up, we put ourselves into a straitjacket, and not being able to compel our scientists to work, not being able to work with the French, with the Germans, with the British, we are losing ground, and we shall lose ground. Where we work openly, we work excellently. If we open up, if we work with our allies, 
we may be able to convince those men in the Kremlin that they better listen to Zakharov. And there will be voices. There are voices in Russia. I do not believe if we open up, Russia will open up at once. But in the course of the time, they may. And to the extent they open up, to the extent they get away from a closed society, from a police state, it will become more possible to discuss with them disarmament or anything else. And at the same time, if they open up, then the difference between them and ourselves will no longer be quite as great. To my mind, the greatest single difference between the two countries is the question of free speech. Well, now, what, what are the, who are the principal lobbyists in America for uh, secrecy? You mentioned a moment ago that uh, uh, presumably some of our intelligence people are afraid that if we reveal what it is we know about the enemy, uh, they can infer the means by which we came to know it. But beyond, uh, beyond that, uh, uh, who, who, who is it that is anxious to perpetuate the secrecy that you find uh, so, uh, so objectionable? This is a very good question. The people who are in charge to enforce secrecy have functioned very well, conscientiously, carefully, generously, we stacked. I have no criticism. They are not the ones who want to perpetuate secrecy. There are some individuals, and McNamara was one, who used secrecy to his own political advantage. Then there are many, particularly in Congress, House of Representatives, the Senate, who imagine that secrecy is security. We even call it security. They have been told, and they have believed it, that mm -hmm. secrecy, a secret is a value mm -hmm. that you should not give away. They do not quite realize how perishable a value it is. I think that by and large, the advocates of secrecy are people who are simply mistaken, who want to perpetuate a policy that may, ha may have had a little sense in 1946, when we were way ahead, the Russians, but which has lost all sense in the meantime. Well, Incidentally, the, uh, one point, very many people among the military are quite happy to open up, perhaps not completely, but to a much greater extent. Than we have. Yes. Well, now, uh, when, when the Manhattan Project that produced the first uh, atom bomb uh, went forward, it was shrouded in, in quite extraordinary secrecy. That's right. That was presumably because we were afraid that the, the Nazis might profit from yes. the advances we made. Well, now, mightn't the same arguments carry over to the existing situation? 
I am afraid that I was one of those who argued for secrecy at the beginning of the Manhattan Project. And you should not have? I am not sure. Probably I should have. During the war, secrecy or no secrecy, we worked fast. The Germans did not really know that we were working on this and working with such energy. If they had known, they may have done more. There was some sense in secrecy at that time. But remarkably enough, Niels Bohr, you know, the man who started atomic theory, a very great man, a wonderful scientist, opposed secrecy at the very beginning. He gave up. He gave in. He agreed. But right after the war, he came back and said, now you should open up. And I want to quote his argument because I cannot do it any better. I cannot put it into more appropriate words. He said, in the Cold War, you should expect that each side should use the weapons which he can handle best. The best weapon of a dictatorship is secrecy. The best weapon of a democracy is the weapon of openness. And openness is a weapon because, and here I'm no longer quoting Bohr, openness is a weapon. He called it a weapon because it leads to faster progress. It leads to cooperation between the free nations. It means a complete assertion of our basic beliefs and it gains us friends behind the Iron Curtain, the right friends, the scientists. Well, do you think that um, uh, this call for openness would extend to uh, giving our allies all the information that we have about the production of atomic uh, weapons? I would say that whatever can be simply stated about these things, mm -hmm. whatever can be simply published, should be published, not only to our allies, to the world. We fool ourselves when we believe we can keep those secrets. Mm -hmm. You know what the best kept secrets are? The secrets I'm trying to explain to my class. <laughs> I do my very best to explain to them the secrets of quantum mechanics. <laughs> and they fail to follow sometimes. Yeah. Now, the point is that I am not telling you that we should invite our enemies and teach them in detail mm -hmm. how to do things. There is a great difference between that and just being simply open about the general simple facts being open about the principles, being open about practically everything that can be formulated that under normal conditions you would publish. I told you that computers are produced openly. We are not circulating blueprints of computers either. There's that distinction, yeah, yeah. Well, Dr. Teller, do you think that uh, if, if the people uh, if the American people knew the extent of the Soviet um, lead, 
that they would generate the spirit which would in turn mobilize American scientists to productively come through with an answer? So I don't know. But I am an optimist. You think we may be and too? And therefore, I hope that it will generate the spirit. We have tried the route of secrecy. It failed. I put my hope on openness. We are in a difficult situation, and one cannot guarantee success. It's not, it's not simply a matter of money. It is a matter of, of money, but it certainly is not simply a matter of money. There are many things that no money can buy. Ideas, initiative, invention, collaboration, persuasion. Genius. If you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. But so, so therefore, wh whereas money is essential, uh, it is not in and of itself sufficient. There's it got to be the spirit. It certainly is not, and I am sure that the spirit is quite essential. And it is essential not only in science. It is essential in the working of a democracy, in the open discussion, so that there should not be any credibility gap, so that we should have confidence so that we should understand how things are done, why things are done. Mr. Greenfield. Uh, Dr. Teller, you seem to be very concerned, I, I won't use the word convinced because we haven't gotten into it, that were it not for America's deterrent, if the Soviet Union felt it could get away with it, there would be a large likelihood that they might launch a strike against the United States. There are those in the Soviet Union who taking a look at some of the statements of members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and some of the more militant congressmen that we have, who have suggested precisely the same thing, that, it's, that, that the Soviet Union must keep working on defense, must take that share of its budget and put it into defense to prevent the United States from launching a first strike, something that you don't want us to do. If this keeps up, if the world, if the universe that this embraces keeps up, well, we must build until we can prevent them from making a first strike. If they must do it to prevent us from making a first strike. If technological aces and kings and queens and jokers are pulled out every few years, then where does it stop? Does it go on until one of or other of our systems collapses? Do we live under the sword of Damocles forever? There are very many answers that your recitation demands because you have now summarized a long argument that has been spread out over the years and repeated so often that it almost has become the gospel truth. First of all, there is no symmetry between the Soviet Union and ourselves. In what right sense? after the war, we had overwhelming superiority. The Russians violated every agreement, suppressed freedom in Eastern Europe. Yet, we did not use our nuclear weapons on them. They have said that they want to liberate the world for communism. 
they know that they are right. I think the great majority of us has the virtue and the fault of skepticism. And we shouldn't and don't want to enforce our will with weapons. There is no symmetry. Excuse me. Well, I have to continue. I have to continue. Question. I am sorry. You're distorting because history, you Dr. have said more things, and I have to reply to your other questions. Well, you, you have to listen to my answers once you ask a question. Even if you distort And history. you have asked where it will end, and I will tell you where it will end. I'll bet. If it goes on as it goes on now, yes. with the Russians running and all standing still. Mm -hmm. It will end in communist domination of the world. And there is no doubt about it. Well, that is what they want. That is what they said. That is what they will have. We, if we can regain the initiative, then indeed there is a chance, by moderation, that we have exercised in the past, and I'm sure will exercise in the future, to win over the Russians to a true form of coexistence. Look. Please do not, do not interrupt. Well, I, can, I am now cannot. finished, and therefore, if Mr. Buckley wants, you can reply. <laughs> Obviously, nobody can outshout you, uh, Dr. Teller. Uh, now, Ms. Ms. Mr. Greenfield, uh, but I would like I, to I think you said this that, one yeah, thing. I think you said that there was a misunderstanding. Yes, I mean, uh, Dr. Teller's fantasy is certainly voluble. I mean, he certainly has more lung power than I do. But why shouldn't the Soviets have pointed to John Foster Dulles's calls for liberation and said that proves they want to overthrow our form of government? It seems to me, Dr. Teller, not that the Soviet Union is, is angelic and pacific. We know they're not. But it is also true that both nations have constructed ideologies pointing to the other as the supreme enemy. In that sense, there is indeed a symmetry. There are American officials who've called for a first strike, for nuclear preventive war against the communist regime. Who? If, uh, two former members of the Chiefs of Staff. I, don't, I really don't want to mention their names. I think it'll just, you know, I think it's useless. But I'll give it to you after the show. You know, one general, okay? Mm -hmm. But the, fact, but the fact is, Dr. Teller, that no, no matter how much you can override and, and shout louder than I can, there is a symmetry in which both sides fear the other. And we build and we build and we build and we are no closer to peace than we were 25 years ago. And I don't understand where the hope is if what you want to do is go back to your laboratory and pull out another technological ace. We've had them for 25 years. You don't know of a single technological ace. And you wouldn't recognize it if you saw it. <laughs> Furthermore, I don't know what as that means. far, excuse me, don't interrupt. Wait, 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 wait. I didn't interrupt you. <laughs> you did not need lung power because you were not interrupted. You talked about John Foster Dallas. Indeed, the great mistake was made in the campaign of Eisenhower to roll, to state something about rolling back the Iron Curtain. It was a terrible mistake. And it was a mistake because when the time came, when the Hungarians, I come from Hungary, I know that situation, trusted in that world and rose up to regain their liberty, there was no rolling back of the Iron Curtain. We have not prepared 
we had been all along determined, and I say rightly determined, not to use these weapons. And in a big country, you cannot prevent a few people from occasionally saying the wrong thing. That there is a symmetry between Russia and the United States in the aggressive intent is, I claim, wrong on the face of it. You say otherwise, you don't need to reiterate, we disagree on that little point. Right, we sure do. Ms. Williams. Um, I wouldn't know a technological ace either, but I'd like to ask you about something else that I think is more general and that maybe a lot of us feel. Um, I'm certainly not original in, in talking about the fact that, that many people feel that we live under the, under the thought that we could any day, you know, be obliterated. Under. We could any day be obliterated by someone accidentally pushing a button. And as, as happened, I think it was just several weeks ago, someone accidentally did push. And for, uh, for, it was fortunately not an, um, not an important button. Um, it seems to me, just to be philosophical for a minute, that this notion that we could all die cataclysmically by accident sort of is the last step in the long existential move towards removing some overall meaning from life. And I wonder if you feel or ever, ever stop to think about taking any sort of responsibility for having contributed or been part of um, a situation which created that state of the world? I have two comments. First, there will be no accident. <laughs> Wait a moment. Is that part of the secrecy? <laughs> there will be no accident, indeed. I wish that we could remove secrecy, and I can sit down with you and show you how extreme the precautions are to avoid accidents. All that happened the other day was to give a wrong piece of information to television and radio. And that, you know, happened on other occasions in other directions as well. To push a dangerous button is really as close to impossible to push it accidentally as anything in this world can be made as secure. At the same time, many of us, and I also, are trying to improve the system and be sure that this terrible accident <laughs> does not occur, and it will not. Now, as to my responsibility, I am very glad that you asked the question, because I can answer it simply and completely. As a scientist, I feel responsible to do good science. I feel responsible to apply it. And I feel responsible to tell the public what has been done so that as is proper in a democracy, the people can decide. After that, my responsibility as a scientist has stopped. How to use things? Everything can be used for good or for bad. How to use things is everybody's responsibility, is every citizen's responsibility, is your responsibility and mine, mine, as a citizen, and in this respect, my voice should be neither louder, nor better heard, nor given more weight than yours.
Mr. Oliver. Uh, if the SDS got its way and managed to demoralize the scientific community, and you find, found yourself next to the president of a United States uh, which was inferior, and uh, was quite obviously inferior, if you value freedom more than anything else, why wouldn't you be willing to have a first strike? Because I think it would be wrong. Because in those words of the, of the Bible, a tooth for a tooth, and an eye for an eye, and for God's sakes, never more. But supposing... In that I believe absolutely. I may be wrong. I know that I'm partly contradicting myself. But I tell you that this is how I would act. And if you think it's wrong, you may act differently. I would not strike first. And I think... The number of people who would are in the minority, are powerless, will never prevail, and I am sure that anybody who really is afraid of them and sets them equal to the truly power-hungry Soviets has lost all sense of proportion. Would you go so far as categorically to exclude uh, preemptive uh, strikes uh, directed against the facilities of third nations that were developing hydrogen bombs? I would, and I said so. Mm -hmm. I have been asked, incidentally, by some of my liberal friends, mm -hmm. would it not be reasonable to destroy the Chinese facilities? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I would not. And I said, all this would lead to would be for the Chinese to rebuild them in secret, and then we could not destroy them a second time. And furthermore, one of the most terrible things in China is the hatred of the Chinese, fostered by Mao Zedong. This hatred I fear more than any bomb. And by bombing the Chinese, we will surely increase this hatred. I would not take the initiative under any circumstances that I can imagine. Thank you very much, Dr. Talon. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, members of the panel. <clears throat>